The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. who has been described as the most charismatic of all English rulers, was the King of England from 1509 until his death in 1547, at the time considered a very long reign. Known for his six marriages, and in particular his efforts to have his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled, his disagreement with the Pope led him to initiate the English Reformation, separating the Church of England from papal authority. Henry is also known for his changes to the English Constitution, accentuating the theory of the divine right of kings. He also greatly expanded royal power during his reign and frequently used charges of treason and heresy to quell dissent, and those accused were often executed without a formal trial. My guest today is Dana Schwartz, host of the iHeartMedia podcast, Noble Blood, a podcast about royalty and bloodshed. Probably the most colorful of the kings and probably in many ways the most written about and televised story told characters because he was so colorful in so many ways. But to go to the beginning, he was born June 28th, 1491 in Greenwich, and he was the third child of Henry VII, with an older sister and an older brother, Arthur, who was the son who was supposed to become king and actually did become king. When we talk about Henry's early life and formative life, there's not as much known about Henry VIII as there are about many kings because 
he was the second son. He was the spare. And it was not anticipated that he would be king. So not as much was written about him or paid attention to in the same sort of way. And that also probably affected how he was raised for the good and for the bad. So his time was spent mostly in being educated and being entertained. What did early life probably look like for Henry Tudor? Sort of the purpose of Henry in a lot of places was for his dad to sort of just consolidate titles that he wanted to stay in the family. So Henry was just sort of this useful placeholder. He was educated, but we don't know a ton about what his temperament is like. We do know that when his older brother Arthur's fiance, Catherine of Aragon, arrived from Spain, that young Henry was sort of entranced by her, that she was sort of his first crush, that she was this older teenager, and he was nine or 10, and saw her and was very smitten right away. And people in court sort of thought it was adorable, the way that the little brother had a crush on this beautiful Spanish teenager. And adorable, in a way, is of the few descriptors we have, right, is that he was an attractive child, a sporty child, actually kind of a voracious learner, which was really new, or let's say different, in terms of King's before him, that he really did read a lot. He learned Latin and French and some Italian, and he really was a learner. And he participated in, even as a kid, many sporting events, which was fine and allowed because, of course, he was the spare and no one was as worried about his health or preserving him. So he had, by all accounts, an affectionate and warm relationship with his mother. As you pointed out, his father was concerned mostly with political ongoings and consolidating property and power, which he did use his son for, but that wasn't very unusual for the time. And there were actually, I think, six or seven siblings, but most of them didn't make it out of infancy. His older sister did. He had a younger sister who did. And Arthur, as you pointed out, it is kind of telling because ultimately, of course, we know he goes on to marry Catherine, but under unusual circumstances, he was smitten with her. But Arthur was to be the king. And when his father died, Arthur at a young age, at 15, becomes king. Arthur is a fascinating character. I think he's just very strange. And I don't believe he ever becomes king. I think he does die before he technically became king. But he was meant to marry Catherine of Aragon, who was the daughter of the two most powerful monarchs in Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, both sides of Spanish property. So she was a massive coup for England. That was an incredibly important alliance, not just because of her wealth, but also because of her political importance. They get married when they're teenagers, but Arthur is always really described as sickly. And he dies, I think, just 20 weeks after he and Catherine are married. Catherine will later swear that it wasn't consummated because he was just this sickly teenager. But it does throw the succession into a tailspin because now, obviously, Henry is going to be king. And it also puts Catherine in a very strange position. She sort of, for almost half a decade, becomes something of a hostage in England because Henry VII doesn't want the alliance to be undermined. He doesn't want to give the dowry back. She had married Arthur, even if they hadn't consummated it. So she's sort of in this no man's land where neither her father nor King Henry VII want to pay for her. So she has a incredibly challenging court that she's holding and household. She is surrounded by strangers and can't go home. It's a very weird time in her life. And then, of course, 
when King Henry VII dies and young Henry becomes Henry VIII, he becomes her savior. It's important to know, I think, that Catherine is very Catholic. That in Spain, that is the religion, but she is more than politically what she's supposed to be. She is truly devout. So the permission to annul the marriage to Arthur was important to her. And as you said, this was sort of driven by Henry VII, who wanted still this alliance to happen. And if it couldn't happen with Arthur, then he was happy to have it happen with Henry VIII. Yeah, she's incredibly Catholic, as you said. There's also then no reason we think that she would have lied when she's pulled before the court and basically interrogated as to whether the marriage with Arthur was consummated. She says it wasn't. Henry VII decides to then hold her in England to betroth her to Henry VIII, the young, now next in line. But he doesn't really have any intention of following through on that, even after this betrothal. He tells young Henry that because he made that deal as a child, that it doesn't really count. And they're actively looking for other wives for him. I think we can look at this moment for young Henry as initially kind of traumatic in the sense that his whole upbringing to date, where his goal in life is to have pleasure and be a taken care of member of the royal family, but with no real responsibility. And now suddenly he's it. And it meant a lot of things, particularly all of the sports and things that he was physically allowed to go off and do. He wasn't allowed to do anymore. They had to preserve his health. There weren't any other male heirs. So his life is changed dramatically as a kid, that he can't do the things that he used to do in the same way, and that he has to now start having the kind of education that really Arthur had been having, which is how are you going to be a good king? And there's also a lot of pressure on him now because of how new the Tudor line is. The Tudors were just a brand new family that was started by Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, after the War of the Roses, uniting the houses of York and Lancaster. It is a new, but it is a tenuous dynasty. And now that is all on young Henry's shoulders. So I think later when people talk about how desperate Henry is for a son, that's really part of it. It is his now single role to preserve the dynasty that his father set up. He clearly takes that very seriously. That is, as you say, is apropos. When his father dies and he succeeds, they go ahead with the marriage. He and Catherine do get married. She actually does become pregnant pretty quickly. The first baby is stillborn. She gets pregnant again and she has Mary. She does have a child, but of course, in keeping with the day that the child is not male, means that Henry still feels he doesn't have an heir. At this point, Henry is sort of at the top of the world. He's married this, by all accounts, stunningly beautiful, powerful princess. And it was a love match, which was rare at the time, a rare coincidence where a politically important match is also a love match. He's sort of this new golden boy for England. As you mentioned, he is intelligent and loves to learn and is sporty and athletic. So I feel like at this point, even the birth of a daughter wouldn't get him down. He was incredibly happy to be married to Catherine, they had the world ahead of them, and they have little Mary, which I think he probably was like, okay, this is fine for now. <laughs> there are some things that when we think of psychologically what's going on, by all accounts, he was not only in love with his wife, but he was reported to be a kind husband, a generous giving things. This actually followed him for a while, at least. 
being a generous husband, apparently a generous in bed husband, but generous with the jewels and titles and pieces of land. He was over six feet tall, broad, as you said, sporty. He liked to joust. He liked to hunt and he was very good at them. And this was, of course, more than just being sporty. This was part of the political game. This was to show yourself as powerful and a force to be reckoned with. Your show of wealth and your show of physical acumen, particularly in jousting and hunting, it was like the golf of their time, maybe. (laughs) The Titans got together and that he would dress the part in his own jewels and finery and armor for jousting that showed his wealth and that he was physically imposing and very good looking and young. He played to this, right? This was important. His sense of power and England as a force. Absolutely. I think that the goal is always that whatever ambassadors are at court, that they go back to their countries and talk about how virile, handsome, athletic Henry is. Because as the absolute monarch anointed by God, Henry is England. If Henry is strong and virile, England is strong and virile. And let's talk about that because the whole, I was anointed by God, I guess for lack of a better word, I'll say rhetoric because it was the ongoing, very loud message that was certainly propagated by him. And it was new for him. In other words, he was the one, sort of the first one to really put out there the king, I, have been anointed by God. So we are sort of one and the same. And my word is God's word because he directed me. He will take it farther than other kings. And we'll get there with Anne Boleyn. But I don't think it was a stretch for monarchs at the time. Europe was incredibly religious at the time. The church was the central organizing institution. It's this idea that simply by virtue of the fact that you are king, God wants you to be king because everything is God's will. So an absolute monarch then can decide how far to extend that logic. And as we will see later, Henry will take that logic further than any other European king had. Was he mentally ill that he heard God talking to him? Or was he mentally ill that he believed God was directing each act that he did? And we would have to say, you have to always think about mental health in the context of current culture and current society. And as you're pointing out, in that day and age, hearing God's voice in your head telling you to do things was not unusual. It was really culturally consistent, and he was imbued with all the power of what it meant to be king. Yeah, that would not at all be an abnormal approach during the day. Again, Henry was a scholar of Latin and religion to that degree, and it was the understood assumption that everything in the world was as God wills it. And that by virtue simply of being the king, that is a sign that God wants you to be king. And then Henry, in sort of his self-justification logic, will say, well, that means all of the actions that I do then show that God wants those things to be done by the king because I'm the king because God made me the king. Uh, Definitely not abnormal at the time. That is how all absolute monarchies worked. They are, you know, king as anointed by God. That is standard 16th century monarch logic. And also in standard political ongoings, that big year, 1509, his father dies, he becomes king, he marries Catherine. He also arrests two of his father's most unpopular ministers, Sir Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley, and charges them with treason and executes them. This sort of style of king management, the idea of removing people who 
you don't think politically are aligned with you, going to do what you want them to do and therefore may pose a threat becomes stylistically. And I think this is important because people tend to think, oh, this didn't happen till later in life. And certainly it escalated later in life. But he did this from the get go. And I think it was sort of a move early on that was people praised. They thought that it was an adept political move, that he was sort of cleaning out the skeletons from his father's closet, that he was 18 when he became king. This idea that this new hero was coming in to, to rebuild England, that praise probably made him more willing to take broad strokes later on. The fact that when he was young, people were happy with everything he did and praised it and saw him as a crusading hero for England. He was changing the direction of the country in a good way. But he was this new, youthful, powerful person. And everyone from ambassadors to ministers were really excited about everything he did. And that's important when we think about the psychology of an individual because of something that actually has only been in my field understood well from a psychiatric standpoint in the last decade. And that is this concept of hubris syndrome that one may see in leaders or basically the criteria are the person who has a lot of power and perhaps fame and is surrounded by people who tell them nothing but that everything they do is incredible and the best and they can do no wrong. That someone who maybe originally wasn't narcissistic, who wasn't actually, didn't necessarily even have the tendency to be consumed with themselves and think they are super special and awesome, could become that way to the level that they are blinded by risks and by the morality of things they are doing because everyone around them has told them they are it and they fly too close to the sun ultimately as a result, hence the hubris and sort of Icarus illusions when talking about hubris syndrome. You almost can't imagine how a king wouldn't become crazy hubristic with the way that the system was structured. How could you not if everyone is telling you that you are God's chosen leader for an entire nation and everything you do is the will of God? I should say that before the birth of Princess Mary to Catherine and Henry, she did have a pregnancy that was male, but was born stillborn. So I think the hope that she would be able to still, even after Mary, have a son and that all would be well was still certainly in hand. It wasn't that unusual to miscarry or have a stillborn baby in those days. It wasn't that unusual even for a young child to die, as Henry had seen around him. And so I think there wasn't concern that there would be a problem. They were young. The fact that she had a daughter showed that she could bear children. They had time. No one was worried. Again, they were in love. They were sexually active together by all accounts. And the fact that she had a child indicated that there wouldn't be a problem later on. Another important feature apparently to Henry of Catherine was that she was willing to allow affairs to occur, that he could take mistresses. And she understood that was part of the deal and that she should be lovely about it and <laughs> turn a blind eye. And she did. And he did a very notable Bessie Blout, who he had a multi-year relationship with, including having a son with that we believe was Henry's, he acknowledged was his. At first he was like, well, this is an illegitimate child, but at some point along the way decided to legitimize that Henry by giving him a title. I do want to be clear that it was always an illegitimate son because it was not born to his wife, but he does formally acknowledge that it is his bastard at least. 
which is better than he does for some of the others that come along afterwards. Although it is also perhaps politically important and may have been a political move and not just an emotional move on his part because he doesn't have a son yet at the point at which he starts doing that. And this potentially paves the way for him to, at some point, make the choice to create an heir of this Henry. So we sort of go back and forth between what was motivated by Henry Tudor VIII by emotional investment and what was done really by pure political movement. Objectively, this is the thing for me to do. You know, that's interesting. I don't know. And it might change it at different points in his life. I think it probably was an ego move with Henry Fitzroy. The idea that like, look at me, I can have a son. I mean, the idea is it's a very 16th century idea of masculinity that you can have sons across the country by numerous women. That is a flattering thing that would reflect well on him. And I think this was early enough in his marriage with Catherine that there was no real fear that they wouldn't have a son themselves. It's also interesting because even though in 2020 we say, wow, he had this mistress or that mistress, for a man and for a king of that time, he actually, by reports, had few affairs or would have one woman he was having an affair with, which was a reduced number as a norm of the time. And really, in that sense, was considered a more faithful man to his wife. I think Henry saw himself as a romantic hero. He is someone who, even later on with his mistresses, would always have a favorite and shower her with poetry and love and gifts and praise. I think he is very much someone who loves to be in love and loves to be like a hero out of an epic story. And so that absolutely does affect him in an interesting way. And his approach to women is distinct, maybe from other royals who were less discriminating with their number of affairs. And Catherine, in turning the other cheek, was just sort of an exemplar of the ideals of what being a queen was. She was beloved by the people. She was kind. She was pious. She prayed a lot. She was passive. She did not get involved in political affairs. Exactly. When she did, you know, it was always to support her husband. She's someone who adored her husband and understood that as king, he could have affairs. And that was something she had to tolerate. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. What in this early stage before the entry of Anne Boleyn, in the happier days, although you could say they they were becoming increasingly less happy as Catherine sadly continued to have pregnancies that ended in stillbirths and never really produced another living heir. So he became increasingly concerned politically and disenchanted, but he ran a very active court. He was very politically and in terms of accruing power, not at that point yet via the church, but in other ways, he was busy accruing power. I think Henry was influenced a lot by his dad being a great military leader and his dad achieving unification of factions in England through battle. And I think Henry wanted that. I think Henry wanted to be a glorious hero for England, riding in on a horse. And so sometimes he would manufacture battles and military excursions where maybe a less young monarch would have focused on peace. I think he is someone who wanted glory and wanted that storybook narrative for himself in the same way that he wanted that storybook narrative with his loves. He was a romantic in every sense of the word. You could say he was romantic, but his family of origin, for at least for the time, was a reasonably healthy upbringing, right? With a warm mother and a clearly wanted and loved son. But he so prematurely at this young age was basically told, okay, the responsibility will be yours and you need to live up to X. And the way that he did that was really, as you said, this romantic ideal that's kind of juvenile, right? It's almost like a tween ideal of what it means to be king. Absolutely. I think his juvenilia will continue throughout his entire life, even 
I mean, close to his death, he will be obese, gout ridden, need help getting on his horse and still think that he needs to lead his men into battle because it'll restore some sense of virtue to him in some ways. He will have that 18-year-old sense of what a great king is his entire life. And just so people understand that sometimes having, you could call it traumatic, or it was not that unusual for the time to have your parent die when you were 18, to be honest, it wasn't that unusual, but to have both parents die when what it means is you literally have to step into their shoes. Most young people, when they died, maybe they had to now be more responsible for the farm or the house or, or trying to just physically survive in some way themselves. But to take over a kingdom and a country and suddenly the people before you who were taking care of you are gone might arrest your development might arrest the development of your ideas of what it means to be an adult. <laughs> yes, I'll say. And we, and so as you're pointing out, we see a lot of evidence of that. And it's just important to consider as nonetheless, he was the one who made the rules. <laughs> and as we'll go on to talk about and see with this arrestment, a lot of the rules he made were rules almost of a teenage gang. I think there's a reason absolute monarchy has gone out of fashion. I don't think it is conducive to the best decision-making process. And I agree with you. There's definitely a stunted development. The same way that like celebrities will never learn technology after the point that they've become famous. Like a celebrity who becomes famous in their 20s will sort of become stunted in their 20s and like won't learn how to send an email. I think the same is true to some degree about uh, Henry and his ideas of what being a king is. I don't think they evolve very much. As I mentioned earlier, sadly, Catherine goes on to have several more stillborn babies. And this is important because now Henry does become really concerned that he is not going to have an heir as Catherine approaches 40. And though the nightmare, of course, is that she'll hit menopause, which there are rumors that it's already happened. You know, every detail of a royal is digested through the court in excruciating detail. So people know when she is or isn't bleeding and the rumors are already swirling that she's going through menopause. And even if she hadn't, Henry had just sort of become disenchanted with her. You know, she was no longer the beautiful teenager that he had seen when he was a child. She becomes an older woman. He's less attracted to her and he stops visiting her bedchamber. And the reality is even today, one's odds of becoming pregnant at 40 are greatly diminished from what your odds are, obviously, in your 20s and even through your mid-30s. Not that it's impossible, but the odds drop. And even without the medicine and nutrition that we have today, it was even worse and even lower odds if your husband isn't sleeping with you. He had, at this point, already had a physical affair with Mary Boleyn, who was in the ladies-in-waiting group for Catherine. And obviously the Boleyn sisters were from a noble family in the sense that they were, you know, well-to-do, had some influence. The daughters were very educated. They had been in France in a court there. The purpose of which, right, was to basically learn to be a wonderful, educated and political wife to somebody of importance. So they had already had that experience and he had already been involved with Mary, but his attentions turned to Anne. She plays it a little more intelligently than her sister. 
she has different goals. And coming from the French court is coquettish, flirtatious, witty. It challenges Henry to, in their head-to-heads when it comes to intelligence. They're very flirtatious. And of course, it's a contrast to the sort of dowdy Spanish style of Catherine. Here is this new French, and she's not actually French, but she came from France and had the, the fashions of France, this French flirtatious, stunning woman. And people always describe her as not necessarily conventionally attractive, but enchanting, that she was flirtatious, that she knew how to engage, very charismatic, and she just enchants Henry in every sense of the word. And as he will say later, literally, but he falls madly in love with her and she wanting to be queen, seeing the writing on the wall and knowing that Catherine's time is over, sees that opportunity and decides to ride it out and refuses to have sex with Henry, refuses to become a mistress until he makes her his queen. It's pretty interesting that Henry, who as time moves on, seems to be a big proponent of taking what you want, whether the other person wants it or not, or you know, or getting rid of them. He doesn't force the situation. It sounds like he certainly verbally tries, but he wants her to willingly be with him. I think he's in love and he's very romantic, enchanted by the chase as Anne smartly clocked very early on. I think that is another interesting piece of Henry's psyche, which is, as we've been describing, he's in love with love. He really loves that feeling that, as a psychiatrist, I say that dopamine high (laughs) that one gets from feeling in love, particularly in new love, which doesn't necessarily last forever, but in the beginning is like a neurochemical high for people like no other. You need less sleep. You feel just giddy and happy all the time. And for someone like Henry, who knew what that felt like because he had that with Catherine, it must have been pretty intoxicating that he didn't just say, well, Anne Boleyn, I will have you whether you like it or not. I don't need to marry you. But he really, by all accounts, subscribed to that feeling state, wanted that. So he sets about trying to figure out, possibly with the help of Anne, who is not like Catherine, who is not quiet or passive, is intellectual in her own right. She's described as mood intense. She could be highly irritable and temper filled, but she could be delightful and charismatic and super fun. And she had her own political aspirations. So whether she contributed to his ideas of how he could go about constructing a exit route from his marriage, but he surrounded himself with people to take up the cause and figure out how to make this happen. The reasons you described before of why Henry is so written about, because what happens changes the course of Europe and world religion forever. Henry demands a divorce from Catherine on the basis that because she had been married to his brother, that their marriage was not valid. And he offers her a pretty generous, I guess we'd call it a settlement, being like, you'll be the king's sister. You'll basically have the title as if you had been married to my brother. But Catherine is incredibly Catholic and religious, and Catholics don't believe in divorce. She knows in her heart that she never consummated her relationship with Arthur, and she doesn't want her daughter Mary to be a bastard child. And I think that the integrity of being queen is so incredibly important to her. And she refuses to go quietly. And of course, Spain being such an important global hub of Catholicism, the Vatican is behind her. The Pope refuses to grant the annulment to Henry. So I'm making a very long story very short. Henry is excommunicated from the Catholic Church, breaks from the Catholic Church, starts the Church of England, 
which is basically Catholicism at this point. It's not this sort of reformation. It's not very different in ideology from Catholicism, but the main difference is he is the head of it, not the Pope. And he declares his marriage from Catherine Denald, and he marries Anne Boleyn. And the writing yet isn't on the wall for Anne Boleyn because she's number two and he does not execute Catherine. This is what she wanted. And she promises Henry a son. He gets rid of Thomas More at this juncture. He executes Thomas More, which is sort of the beginning of a long list of executions of a pattern of dealing with people who aren't supporting his decision about the church. And as you said, this decision about the church, it benefits him in many ways, right? The Church of England, he becomes the head of the church, which means that he can and does close all the monasteries and other such structures that were valuable. And he gets all the money. So he seizes the property. He puts this money in his coffers. It's also notable to say that Henry was a pretty big spender all along, whether he took up uh, to have a battle to consolidate some power or look good or what he spent in court. But he usually kept the coffers pretty low because of the lavish style in which he kept his parts of the kingdom. This was a good way to put more money into the coffer. So a lot of this really worked for him and probably both consolidated and added to this hubris that he had in terms of what it meant that he was the king. And I think he justified it to himself by understanding it to be God's will. Of course, God would want him to have a son. Catherine hadn't given him a son. Here's this beautiful woman who promising him a son. And this is the only way to make it happen. I think Henry is fully convinced that doing this is God's will by evidence of the fact that he didn't give him a son with Catherine. If God had wanted him to stay in the Catholic Church and stay married to Catherine, he would have given him a son. And the people around him, Cromwell and Wolseley, they're really supporting that. They are political advisors and they're saying politically, you have to do something to continue the Tudor line. So this is necessary. So he has support for that. So Anne also has several stillbirths. She does give birth to a girl, to Elizabeth. And almost as soon as he has her, the bloom is off the rose. I mean, that is sort of always the way things are with the chase. Once you get the object of the chase, it's never quite as good. Basically, the moment that she doesn't have a son and it's a daughter, Henry feels betrayed. He thinks that he went through this massive thing and she, you know, was a witch, a sorceress who tricked him. At the very least, she didn't keep up her end of the bargain. That was the deal. He's like, why did I do this? This was a huge mistake. He has massive buyer's remorse, but instead of acknowledging it as a mistake that he made, he blames her entirely. He gets word from her political enemies that she has been sleeping around with other people. No real evidence of that. I mean, she was a flirtatious person and some things that she did say could be absolutely construed against her, but it would have been incredibly foolish for her at this point to have an affair. And Anne was far too savvy for that. But she had a lot of political enemies because of her opinionated nature doesn't have anything to do with sleeping with other people. She had made a lot of enemies and they had understood that the way to remove her would definitely be to accuse her of adultery. And basically Henry's massive buyer's remorse after this huge break from the church, the population of England hates Anne. And then the final nail in the coffin is her not giving him a son. At first there's Elizabeth and he can live with one daughter, but she has one more pregnancy that sort of becomes the one everything is riding on because she can tell that Henry's 
affections have turned and it is a miscarriage. And at that point, I think she knows that she missed her chance. She took a swing and she missed. I mean, if she had had a son, it would have worked out for her. You got to hand it to Anne. She really went for it. She tried and failed, but through no fault of her own. As you say, no fault of her own. But in those days, right, it was very much considered the woman's fault. Whether it was going to be a boy or a girl and survive or be pregnant at all was definitely considered up to the woman and the woman's fault. And if there was thought to be a problem, it was always the woman. It certainly wasn't going to be the king. It wasn't generally going to be the man, period. But it sure as heck wasn't going to be the king who could possibly be at fault. But in that vein, let me just mention, it's very interesting, just in recent years, two bioarchaeologists who have done, I'll say research, though they're trying to get access to, as we speak, Henry VIII's hair or bones or something so that they can look at DNA, but they have put forward a theory that actually fits a lot of what we've talked about has transpired in the sense that there were so many stillbirths between Catherine and Anne Boleyn that one has to wonder, I mean, even for the times, this was an unusual number of deaths in utero and they were not early term deaths. They were late term or just after birth deaths. And that is important information in terms of why would that happen? And so they have put together a lot of the medical information that is available about Henry VIII and this history of an earlier pregnancy that survived, but only a female and a late term pregnancies that did not survive that were often male. And that would fit with the pattern of Henry VIII having had something called McLeod syndrome, which is a genetic syndrome that is sex linked to the sex chromosomes. So that males who inherit this genetic mutation are much more likely to be affected in various ways than females who are more likely to be carriers. And that males are affected usually starting in midlife. And in those days, it would have been mid to late life because people didn't live as long. But males got things such as what's called cardiomyopathy or enlarged heart. They got uh, muscle weakness, which could have been a contributor to less physical activity and the development of obesity. They got neuropathy, which means your nerves sort of basically not functioning as well. Again, a contributor to slowing down, not being able to walk as well and gaining weight and becoming obese. And they also got some mental status changes, which can be anything from some cognitive decline to the development of paranoia to mood changes, all of which we think about Henry later in life and wonder if that was what was going on. But a prominent feature of McLeod is often the people with the genetic mutation have what's called Kell positivity blood. And, you know, people are familiar, I think, with RH factor blood, you're A positive or you're A negative, that the positive negative being RH factor. But there's another factor in blood called Kell. And very rarely, but in the Caucasian population, there is a small percentage of men, particularly, who can be Kell positive. And when a Kell positive man mates with a Kell negative woman, which most all women are because this is such a rare genetic mutation, then it is likely that the fetus will not survive, particularly later pregnancies, not necessarily the first pregnancy, but after the woman's body has been exposed, her blood has been exposed to Kell positivity, she will make antibodies to that foreign positive. Those antibodies, when they spot it again, when they say, oh, here's another Kell positive fetus, will attack it. That's it exactly. So every one of his wives gets uh, one shot and both Catherine and Anne both failed. 
So of course, if you are divine and chosen by God, this has nothing to do with you. And so Henry just had to find a way to remove the next wife. And of course, as you said, the bloom was already off the rose. He'd already moved on to being infatuated with Jane Seymour. He also had impotence issues at this point. He had been in a jousting accident. And basically from this point in his life, he will have real impotence issues that his doctors will try to treat. And so Henry not being attracted to his wife will always be blamed on the wife again, regardless of actual medical things going on. But Jane Seymour is the opposite of Anne. You know, she is sort of an English rose. She is quiet. She's demure. She's more of a Catherine type. And after the once had been fun and then became infuriating, challenging wit of Anne Boleyn, he just wants a simple wife again. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count.
You mentioned the jousting accident, and that is really important if we're going to talk about the psychological makeup of Henry. That's a pivotal moment. I think it was 1536 that he has this accident, and he is knocked unconscious for two hours. He opens up a wound that is an old wound that ultimately will never really close back up again. But the loss of consciousness and the depth of injury is really important. A, it is decided he probably shouldn't joust anymore, which was a huge source of pride and prowess. And you talk about impotence, you know, but like literally a phallic symbol of him, the jousting. And he really can't do that anymore. Losing consciousness for several hours means you basically have had a concussion and organic brain trauma leaves one with the potential for everything from ongoing mood changes like depression to paranoia to cognitive deficit. And it shows a weakness for Henry that in terms of aging and not being that young, handsome, athletic buck that he really needed to view himself at. So that was probably not just a jousting accident for him. That was probably a psychologically a big event, an upsetting, depressing, and possibly even from a physiologic standpoint, turning point for Henry. It becomes the beginning of the end for him biologically. I mean, he can't exercise. He gains a massive amount of weight. That sore on his leg descriptions range from clinical to disgusting but it is always just like dripping pus. He becomes this obese, smelly. They had to rig mechanical devices later on to basically sort of help move him around. And of course it has sexual ramifications. And I think it probably in the back of his mind knows that women aren't attracted to him the same way they were when he was younger. This has ramifications for him politically in terms of the way that other countries see him and the consolidation of power other leaders, I guess I'll say, you know, other kings, emperors are aware of what he is like at this point. So actually at this juncture, he's married to Jane Seymour. She does, thankfully for her, produce Edward, who sadly though, sounds like he also is a very sickly boy for much of his not that long life. And Jane Seymour dies shortly thereafter within two weeks. He actually initially is surprised, but not too saddened. He later becomes in retrospect, sad and says she was his best wife because of course she gave him a son and because she didn't probably annoy him in any way because she died. On his standards, that would make her a pretty terrific wife. He wants to be buried next to her. But at this point, politically, things are looking shaky for him. And because of the break with the Catholic Church and because of losing this woman that in retrospect, he can make perfect in his memory Henry sort of gives up on this idea of romantic love for a little while and is only talked back into marriage by his advisor, Cromwell, basically forcing him to marry for diplomatic reasons and to marry outside of England, which will be Anne of Cleves, because they need international allies. Breaking from the Catholic Church and the Vatican was a massive political move, but he still hasn't gone so far as to become Protestant the same way that other German states are. So there are very few women that he could sort of choose from that would be political matches. Cleves is one of those perfect sort of right in the middle zones where they're not too Protestant, but they don't support the Pope. And so Thomas Cromwell orchestrates that match. At least this is sort of the idea of creating an ally in Germany, right, or that region. But at this point, he now presides over Wales, but he gave himself 
they were more formal titles over these regions. You know, his brother had been Prince of Wales and then Henry becomes Prince of Wales. Oh God, those titles are such a mess. But he and his father would have had Scotland and Wales for their entire terms as king. What Henry really wants is regions in France. That would be the jewel in his crown. And in and out, he's made attempts to do that, but they have not been highly successful. No, if their victories, their Pyrrhic victories, their losses, they're pointless. It's really a stalemate between him and Francis, the king of France. Anne and Cleves doesn't work out so well. He deems her not attractive, which sounds like an incredible projection because it seems likely that upon her seeing him, he may have read that she did not find him particularly attractive. But he goes through with the wedding, but pretty quickly wants out and has that annulled, punishes Cromwell for basically that and other issues. So has him arrested and executed. And now basically the court of Henry VIII has become a pretty terrifying place. So we could say, oh, it was McLeod syndrome making him more paranoid. Was organic brain damage from his jousting accident making him paranoid? Or was he and the environment that he created by executing so many people making this a very paranoid environment where he hired a spy master to feed him conspiracy theories of who was against him. He becomes a man obsessed with holding on to his power, is uh, terrified of losing that power. Now he has a son, but you need another one because you always need a spare. And Henry knows that as well as anyone because he had been the spare. And with his health failing him, he sort of goes into like an extended mania. His next wife is a teenager who is just sort of this stunningly beautiful teenager, Catherine Howard, who he marries and almost immediately beheads because she was having affairs behind his back, which can't really blame her. He, she is a teenager and he is a incredibly disgusting at this point man with a open leaking leg wound. And then his last wife, of course, will be Catherine Parr, who is often presented as the nurse, sort of, because she's more matronly. She's a widow. She is older. She's more mature, but she's also incredibly intelligent, but also intelligent enough not to rock the boat. She and Henry talk about religion, and whenever he gets too mad, she backs off immediately and is like, oh, I was just, you know, I wanted to see how well you debate, and I wanted you to teach me. I was just pretending because I wanted you to be so intelligent to debate me. So unlike Anne, who always held her ground, this Catherine, who's an incredibly intelligent woman, recognizes what you need to do to keep your head with Henry. She is smarter in that sense, but she also may have been debating a man who was less intelligent. He had certainly had some cognitive decline by now. And of course, she'd had some historical warning shots that she was in dangerous territory herself. So the combination was probably the case. But she did some very instrumental things in convincing Henry to reacquaint himself and take back into the fold his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, and put them back into the line of succession where he had written them out, changing the face of history, because we know that Edward did not live very long and ultimately both Mary and Elizabeth go on to have the crown. But that is thanks to Parr, who in fact really quietly and consistently worked on getting him to 
bring those women back into his life. Yeah. And when she's queen, she's really wonderful with his two daughters who had been neglected to various degrees during the several states of his various other marriages. She brings them back to court. She's really maternal or sturdy almost. And she's an incredibly intelligent woman in her own right. She's a published writer. She writes religious tracts anonymously, of course, at first and then later under her own name. And when she debates Henry, she always knows when to pull her punches is the smartest thing she does because she recognizes that living is the most important thing. Toward the end, he is described as incredibly gluttonous and eating everything under the sun. But it's hard to know really how true that was as the source of his obesity and how much other things may have been afoot, whether he had some sort of organic brain damage that may have contributed to obesity. People who have brain trauma can sometimes impact their production of various hormones like growth hormone that actually causes them to develop a metabolic syndrome that causes them to develop obesity and then diabetes. It does seem from all of the leg ulcers that he had that would not heal that he probably did have diabetes in the days when nobody knew what that was, but it did cause you to develop lower extremity wounds that wouldn't necessarily heal. He was thought to have gout. He had a lot of pain often and gout was not unusual in those days for people who ate so much meat and drank beer and things that stimulate gout if you're predisposed to it. So wouldn't be shocking. And it's also wondered if later he didn't even suffer from scurvy due to the lack of eating of fruit and vegetables, which were not in abundant supply and not something that he particularly tried to eat because nobody knew about scurvy at that time either. But any one of these things does not make for a very appealing body habitus. <laughs> and also makes for very poor health. So what ultimately killed Henry is hard to know because there were so many things going on without an autopsy. We don't know ultimately which one. I'm not, I'm not sure how important it is exactly which one, but he certainly was almost a bedridden man by the time of his death. As you mentioned, he couldn't get exercise and he had been a formerly very athletic man. He's eating incredibly rich food. He's being indulged. The combination is not a healthy combination combined with 1500s medicine. It was not a great formula for a long life for Henry. Although, you know, he's a long reigning monarch by those standards. He dies at 55, which is, I would say, young for us. 37 years is very long reigning for a monarch. And he did preside over a number of changes, certainly the Church of England being one of the most notable, but he did hold on to power, hold on to territory. He played the political game. He is remembered for presiding over many peaceful times, and he is remembered as presiding over a time of fair or decent prosperity for a lot of the country. Well, yeah, he got all that Catholicism money. Right. The Pope didn't like him, but the people did like him as a monarch. And he also set up his will for his line of succession which was also not something that monarchs necessarily had done before to be on the grave, try to set up and allow women to rule so that he could have his bloodline continue for the foreseeable future. And he even laid out a plan. If Mary wasn't there and then if Elizabeth wasn't there, it would be his sister's family, the Greys. He tried to write off the Stuarts altogether, his other sister's family. But he did try to consolidate and maintain his power even past his death. As you mentioned, it would set a um, challenging precedent for kings leaving lines of successions in their will. 
because young Edward would be manipulated into undoing his father's. He's like, well, I'm king now, so I can do it. Or he wouldn't rather, his advisors would. He was just a child. But Henry leaves it in this strange place of peace that you can ascribe maybe to Catherine Parr's mediating influence, that he does put his daughters in the line of succession. And of course, his daughter Elizabeth will reign over the golden age of England. So in the end, Hubris may have undone Henry VIII, but he did have the acumen and intellect and political ambition to set up his country to be ruled by his bloodline for years to come. Of course, she will have to, for her own challenging political reasons, make the decision not to get married and have children. And so the Tudor line will end with Henry's daughter, Elizabeth. But yeah, I think the reason people write about him is because he's such a strange, fascinating, very human person. All of his decisions are very mercurial and emotional. And he's someone who has the potential for greatness and gets in his own way and wants so much and has so much power and screws up in so many different ways that it's very exciting. He's a great example of how you cannot separate leaders from their human minds and the psychological makeup that they get when they're younger and how that plays out for their lifetimes. I think that's incredibly well said. That wraps things up for this episode. Thank you to my guest, Dana Schwartz. If you'd like to know more about Henry VIII, you can check out her podcast, Noble Blood. And if you want to know more about the concepts in personology, you can check out my book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. For mental health advice from me, you could take a listen to my other podcast, How Can I Help? Follow me at Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz. And until next time. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. Editing, music, and mixing by Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. of endless diets and weight loss struggles it's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results introducing smart metabolic burn from brain md your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat imagine burning fat balancing glucose levels and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks this unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula berberine which targets abdominal fat and oea which curbs your appetite with just two capsules a day Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? 
Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.